Hey, Deserving Listeners, I get a lot of questions from you asking about using psychedelics, using LSD, microdosing, uh, psilocybin, this kind of thing in therapeutic work. Uh, and although um, I usually like to answer such questions, it's not my area of expertise. I can look at the research, I can look at the literature and, uh, you know, sort of digest it and communicate it to you. But, you know, that can only go so far. So I thought I would have an expert on the podcast, Elizabeth Nielsen, to talk about this topic since so many people have so many questions about it. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. So can you introduce yourself uh, to the podcast listeners, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Elizabeth Nielsen. I'm a psychologist. Um, I'm based in New York City. Um, and I do a couple of things in my professional work. I have worked for about six years now on clinical trials of psychedelic-assisted treatments. Um, those are you know, FDA-approved trials taking place at major institutions. I've worked on trials of psilocybin for alcohol use disorder, trials of psilocybin for um, treatment-resistant depression, as well as trials of MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I've got a fairly big background in terms of providing uh, therapy and research trials and, um, and also uh, training other therapists to do that work. And then outside of that work in private practice, um, I also work with uh, people, clients, patients, the public to um, address some harm reduction issues around psychedelic use in other settings, as well as um, help clinicians get educated about what's going on in the field of psychedelic research and how they can have conversations with their clients about um, their decisions to use psychedelics or not use psychedelics or what those experiences might have been like. Um, so I'm doing a variety of things, and I'm, I'm hopeful that I can be here and maybe answer some questions and um, shed some light on some of the mysteries around this field. Um, I am here just sort of representing myself, my own, uh, my own private practice work, um, although I have a lengthy history in the research studies. I'm, uh, I'm not representing any specific institution or talking on behalf of a study at this point. So how can uh, psychedelics be used therapeutically? You mentioned treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of our listeners struggle with these things and might be excited to hear about uh, alternatives or other methods to treating those conditions. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, um, there's in general a lot of excitement about that. Um, what people may not be so aware of is that there was actually a fairly strong body of uh, research and literature on the use of psychedelics, specifically mostly LSD, um, dating back from the 1950s and 1960s and early 70s, um, before the current climate of restrictions uh, were put into place. And so a lot of a lot of research was done. A lot of um, a lot of people received these treatments in experimental settings and research settings, um, but these drugs were never approved for therapeutic use in the way that um, people are attempting to get them approved now. Um, so more recently, what we're seeing is some small pilot studies um, that are giving the initial indication that it may be feasible to use uh, psychedelics in a therapeutic setting, so in combination with preparatory and integrative psychotherapy um, in treatment. Um, but what I really want to emphasize is that uh, those 
when those uh, medicines are used in that way, um, it's distinct from use in any other setting. So there's this whole psychotherapy container that goes on around it, um, as well as um, it's very experimental at this point. I mean, we're uh, the, the research is really in, in its beginning stages, and um, the data to demonstrate actual um, actual efficacy or actually who this might be helpful for and, and which indications um, is just still in the process of being gathered right now. So what have you seen in your practice? Do you actually use these methods with your clients? Well, I do in research settings, um, and there's there are some great publications that address um, the way that those research setting psychotherapies are, um, are carried out. Um, I can talk a little bit about some of the structures of them, for instance, in, um, in research with, um, alcohol use disorder, people are given preparatory psychotherapy sessions. Um, they're given some actual, um, counseling around changing drinking, and then um, they're given the psychedelic session with the support of two psychotherapists that have worked with them before and stay with them through the entire session. And then they have a couple of um, follow-up integrative psychotherapy sessions to help really consolidate those gains. And we call that integration. And it's, um, it's designed to help people really build the insights and knowledge that they may have discovered during the psychedelic session into the course of their daily life. So to really um, take action based on the things that they may have experienced or learned during their experience. Yeah. From what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, the protocol is that someone signs up for the study and they're, they're saying, yeah, I suffer from ongoing addiction issues and I've tried various different things to stop and I'm, I want to, you know, I want to try this other uh, method and they will have a uh, talk about, um, you know, their history of psychedelics maybe, but they also talk about with a professional expert about what the psychedelic session session is going to be like and, and what, um, you know, to expect so that they don't have, uh, a bad trip, as they say, and then <laughs> yeah. um, you uh, administer the uh, psychedelic, the LSD, usually, and then they will um, have their experience. And uh, there's someone there with them, as you say. Uh, mm -hmm. You said there's two people with them, correct? Yeah. Um, by and large, research protocols are using two very specifically highly trained therapists that sit with the. Uh, with the participant for the entire eight hour session. Yeah. And yeah. talking with them, making sure they don't have a bad trip, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And also uh, helping them to maybe explore, is it kind of free associative for the participant mm -hmm. or are there specific protocol questions they ask? Well, it depends a little bit on the protocol. So um, first of all, I want to just go back and, and write one thing, which is that we're not actually using um, LSD in any of the trials in the United States at this point. Um, trials are being conducted with psilocybin, which um, for listeners who may be unfamiliar is uh, chemically and experientially similar to LSD, but it's shorter acting. Um, it's actually the natural, naturally occurring compound found in what's commonly known as magic mushrooms. Although what we use in research settings is pure um, medical grade psilocybin. Um, but uh, to answer your question about the actual sessions, you know, there are different approaches. Um, 
for the most part, people are asked to sort of focus on their internal experience um, and uh, researchers or people conducting sessions are using um, eye shades and headphones and um, sitting with the participant, but uh, really attempting to allow them to take off into their own internal landscape and go exploring um, to the extent that they're that they're able to um, let go of being uh, involved in what's going on outside of them in the room um, in conversation with the therapists, but actually. Uh, diving into that, into those internal workings. Now, um, you mentioned also bad trips, and um, that's a, a very sort of colloquial term for often uh, a combination of, you know, sort of overwhelming experiences, maybe some fear, maybe some panic. Um, and really, in research, we've we've found that we're um, we're preparing people to, you know, as best we can to be open to and accept whatever experience arises. Um, we're doing a lot of things to uh, reassure and reduce fear. Um, we're also, you know, giving this in a, uh, in a research medical setting. So um, some, of the, some of the factors that might be scary for people in other settings are, you know, are not present, right? Um, it's completely legal. There's medical monitoring. All of that stuff is in place. People are very well screened. Uh, for any uh, health counterindication, and um, but we do recognize that you know sometimes people have some difficult experiences, um, and those if they're sort of approached with a sense of openness and curiosity can actually lead to some really uh, fruitful learning and really fruitful experiences. So I think it's a little bit of a balancing act there. So then after the session, there's a uh, follow up uh, soon after. Yeah, people come back in general in research protocols. People come back and have a integration session, a non-drug psychotherapy session, if you will, uh, the following day again with the same two therapists. And um, depending on the you know the target diagnosis and the problem and why they're there and and a little bit on what the protocol is, um, that discussion can be a place to talk about what occurred during the psychedelic session, as well as how that might translate into um, what's happening for them in terms of broader change in their life. And the target conditions, we've been saying addiction, but this is a similar protocol for PTSD and depression. There are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities and overlap, but um, you know, when you're working with diagnosis specific protocols, um, those are always going to be slightly tailored to that population. But a lot of the procedures are, um, a lot of the the sort of general procedures that we're discussing now are are fairly similar. Um, And you see these published in, um, you know, for instance, the alcohol trial protocol um, has been well described in the literature. Um, uh, The MDMA um, for post-traumatic stress disorder uh, therapy manual is actually available online. Those studies are sponsored by a group called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, their website is maps.org, and there's a lot of resources there for people who might want to read more about this, uh, this protocol and, and treatment approach. So I'm imagining, and I could be wrong about this, that the follow-up session, and maybe even during the psychedelic session, there are questions about, like, if the participant is thinking, okay, I want to work on my alcohol addiction. And so there might be, uh, you know, soft open-ended questions during and after around like, 
So, you know, what was your experience and how does, how do you think it relates to the, maybe the underlying reasons why you uh, are, you know, compulsively drinking or what kinds of discoveries did you make? And then, okay, how does that relate to your behavior? Um, but that's just me supposing what kind of questions or discussions are happening during those times. For the most part, those discussions would be happening after the session. Um, the model for psychedelic assisted therapy is actually to set up the relationship with the participant in such a way that they are able to really dive into having their own complete experience without much interference from the therapists during the experience. Now, of course we're there if someone needs to talk, they're having an emotional time, they um, need some reassurance, some assistance. But the model of psychedelic assisted therapy is really to allow people to kind of have their own profound experience um, that then can be discussed and integrated later. There's another model that um, people may be less familiar with, which is called psycholytic therapy, where uh, usually lower doses would have been used to um, help people be able to have a more open frame of mind, perhaps um, some changes in perception and cognition, but really to be able to engage in psychotherapy during the active uh, acute uh, psychedelic drug effects. And that model was uh, used and tested during the 1950s and 60s. It was developed at that time and, um, and it was put into practice. Um, but that, for the most part, is less of what we're doing now. We're really usually focusing on allowing people to have that full um, psychedelic experience and then bringing it back and discussing it later. Yeah, so I'm trying to imagine what it would be like or what a possible result of, of this would be like for someone. And I'm thinking like afterwards they are uh, thinking, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. I, I've heard it from a lot of people just recreationally, uh, their experiences with psychedelics. And uh, they'll say things like, well, I, I just opened up this whole new way of looking at the world and myself and um, I carry it with me now. You know, there'll be people that will say, I only used LSD three times and it was 10 years ago and I still carry those wisdoms with me uh, to help me in my life. Uh, it helps me to see that I'm connected to the universe in a way that uh, isn't always intuitive or it, it makes me realize that there's a higher purpose to everything and I don't need to worry quite as much about the day-to-day -day things, which, and the, that worry is what led me to be, um, you know, having mental illness symptoms or um, addiction compulsions. And with that wisdom, uh, one, um, I can allow myself to occasionally have a drink or two, I uh, am not stressed out to the point where I need a drink. Um, are these the kinds of things that people are saying? I mean, just as one micro example. So I think it may be actually helpful here to shift into talking about um, working with people who have had experiences outside of the research, um, which is something that I do in private practice and um, have you know, worked on developing a training program for therapists to learn also how to be able to do. Um, because we do know that a large, fairly 
decent percentage of people. It's been quoted as somewhere around 10% of the population of the United States have had experiences with psychedelics. Um, and many of those people, you know, may come into therapy and have uh, something like what you described um, and, you know, would like to be able to discuss it or maybe feel that they've learned something really valuable from it. Um, so that's, that's a known uh, phenomenon. I mean, our position is really that, um, you know, from a harm reduction standpoint, there is uh, reason to uh, be able to be curious about those experiences and bring those experiences into psychotherapy um, should someone want to. Yeah, but I, I'm still making a lot of assumptions and I'd rather have you tell me what the research is finding in terms of with the participants, what are they saying? Is are, I don't know the the design of the research that you're referring to, but the mm-hmm. research that I would come across, they're they're trying to reduce symptoms. They're trying to see does this protocol actually reduce the symptom, right? Uh, the target symptom, and uh, of course, it's hard to know why that's happening. But so what I, you know, what, what I are the people? The large scale um, comparative comparison studies, like large larger scale placebo double blind trials, um, by and large are not they're not finished yet. They're not they haven't been done yet. What we're really looking at is um, results from small scale pilot studies. So, for instance, um, pilot studies where you know ten people came through the protocol, everybody got open label psilocybin, um, and by and large, we did see vast improvement. Um, there was a publication of that um, a couple of years ago that I've spoken about uh, at several conferences, and we do see reductions in drinking. We do see reductions in both heavy drinking and overall drinking days. Uh, we do see, you know, uh, across the board, very positive outcomes. Um, but those aren't large-scale comparison studies. They're not double-blind. We don't know how much of that is placebo effect. Um, and those sorts of things, or how much of that is um, could, would also be accounted for by placebo effect if somebody ran the whole protocol exactly the same, but without the psilocybin. That's what's actually being tested right now. Um, so this research is really in its in its kind of in its infancy. Um, there are some a couple of great qualitative uh, publications where people have talked about their experience and. Um, you know, the the profundity of the insight is really astounding um, from my own observations and from um, reading a lot of these um, these reports and, and transcripts and things that I've uh, that I've worked through and published on. You know, people are really feeling a profound shift in their internal state, their internal relationship to um, to their drinking. And that is. Um, you know, related to the change that they're feeling, um, but we don't really we don't really have such uh, solid data as far as exactly what kinds of experiences people need to have, or um, to what extent uh, the subjective experience is uh, you know how it's exactly translating into change. I think that's um, it'll be great to be investigating that for the next. 30, 40 years at least. Um, but that's really in its, in its very beginning of our understanding. Yeah. And I appreciate your tentative scientific responses uh, that, you know, uh, tells me that you're a responsible science communicator. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's in helpful, uh, I think, for people to hear 
this conversation and, and the way that you're communicating about it, uh, partially because there's so much hype around this right now. Uh, yeah. A lot of people on the internet are saying like, uh, there are, or even news articles with titles like, uh, you know, magic mushrooms cures addiction. You know, scientists prove that LSD can cure your PTSD. And right. <laughs> when I would see these, uh, these claims, I was skeptical, obviously, because that's a pretty fantastical claim. And if true, it can just completely rework our entire understanding of, of the mind and also of our, of our industry would be great. And when yeah. I looked into the research, I found, right, it would be these small uh, pilot studies. I mean, partially because the government has been suppressing these kinds of uh, research investigations, uh, mm -hmm. legal reasons, funding reasons. And so we're essentially back in the fifties with regards to our, uh, you know, data uh, gathering. Um, yeah. you know, we have tons of data on Prozac, but uh, not a lot of ton, not a lot of data on this yet. And, and you're, you know, you're saying, well, we just have to be careful about any broad claims we make. We need bigger studies. We need more time. It might take 30, 40 years for us to know. And, uh, so a lot of my response to people when they would ask me questions, um, I, upon the, you know, uh, little bit of investigation that I did, I came to the conclusion of like, well, we just don't know yet. Um, is it, is it possible that these, um, substances, uh, can help some people? It seems highly likely, uh, because, uh, one, the data seems to be pointing in that direction. And also, uh, it stands to reason. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people like these drugs for a, probably some logical reasons. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's, um, stands to reason that, you know, it's like, uh, if somehow caffeine was illegal or something and, and, um, we were, you know, these speculations are like, I wonder if caffeine helps me work better when I'm at, when I'm at the office. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it stands to reason if people are using alcohol or uh, caffeine to, you know, keep them on task at work, uh, recreationally, it's like, it's probably likely that there's some effect there. It's hard to know. Um, and you're also careful to say, look, you know, we don't have double blinded studies, uh, be, you know, the, the, uh, the placebo effect is real, right? Um, mm -hmm. And there's just countless examples of of that. And uh, and I, but I'm curious how one could double blind it because you would have to give people a psychedelic experience without having administered the substance, you know? Because usually with uh, you know other kinds of you know when they do trials of say Prozac, you give them a pill, but there's no immediate intoxicating noticeable effect from, from, uh, taking Prozac, for example. Um, and that can't be reproduced in a, you know, control. So how, how would you really truly eliminate the, the placebo effect or control for it? I think of the studies that are doing placebo controlled work as doing, it's more like therapy only condition or therapy plus psychedelic condition if you will. So people are still uh, getting all of the psychotherapy. They're getting the session just the way they would. Um, they're getting, you know, uh, a, a placebo pill, whatever it is for the session. Some, some studies use an active placebo, some use an inert 
uh, placebo. Um, but just the process, the amazing thing is that just the process of going through all of that preparation and going through that session where they're coming into the room and they're lying down, they're putting on these eye shades and headphones and they're sort of disconnected from the internet and all of their usual uh, things that, um, you know, remind them who they are. <laughs> um, that in itself can, can be a powerful experience. And, um, you know, people have been known to be unsure of what they got. Um, and therapists as well can have been known to be unable to tell. I, I can tell you anecdotally from my own experience, I'm not always sure. Uh, if someone got a placebo or an active dose of a psychedelic in a study. Um, the situation is, is strange and unique enough that it, um, it, it is genuinely uh, not always clear. Not clear. Huh. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Like a deprivation chamber with a, you know, two people there with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what is that like? I mean, eight yeah, hours, yeah. do you take a break at some point to go to the bathroom? I, we definitely take a bathroom break. We definitely get up and have a stretch, um, you know, uh, a quick lunch or a, a walk around the a block. But um, no, really the, the two therapists are dedicated to being there for the day in the room with the person, someone, one of us at least is always present there. Um, we'd never have both people out of the room for, for, uh, for any period of time. Um, and that is not just to ensure physical safety, but really to ensure the, the psychological safety that the patient knows that they're always there. Uh, someone's always there to care for them. Uh, someone's always there to assist them, to bring them water, to help them if they need to go to the bathroom, whatever it is. They're never left alone. In the rare case where someone does have a significant fear response, what do you do? We're really highly trained in how to provide assurance and assistance and um, verbal, you know, verbal interaction with a person in a way that can help them move in and through those experiences. So um, it's really important that we have a, a good, strong relationship with them to begin with. Um, we touch on certain topics before uh, the session, such as, you know, uh, potential effects and things that they may feel. And we can, uh, we can remind people of those things. Um, We can help them to get a little bit more oriented or to maybe lessen the intensity of the experience by adjusting certain things in the room. Um, And, we can, you know, also be uh, just present to sit with someone as they go through a difficult experience so that they're not with that difficult experience alone. Um, and those are the sorts of things that I think allow people to, to have those experiences and um, let them be something that becomes part of the larger picture um, and something that they may actually find some insight in towards the end as opposed to being sort of stuck in this very uh, fearful or distressing place. Yeah. I'm just imagining from my own experience with people who are tripping recreationally, it's like they, you know, there's so many different experiences someone would have, but Mm -hmm. they might be like, uh, sitting in a dark room or something. And it's like, I I'm falling into a pit. I'm falling into a, or a, a giant, you know, bloody, you know, mouth is eating me, my leg or or whatever they say. And you're just like, okay, I'm here. You're okay. 
uh, that's not actually happening. That's what you're seeing. Uh, what, do you, do you want to turn on the lights a little bit? Do you, do you mm-hmm. want to turn off the music? Do you, uh, you know, you're okay. Everything's fine. Um, you're not alone. I'm here with you. Uh, and that can often help people. Is it that kind of stuff? Right. So, um, what you're, what you're citing, I think is similar in that, um, people who have some training in um, psychedelic harm reduction, for instance, for festival settings or peer settings or things like that, um, may know some some helpful things that they could do to uh, see someone through a difficult experience. And uh, I'll refer again to MAPS because they have an excellent training uh, for people that want to learn how to do psychedelic harm reduction, especially in festival settings. It's called the Zendo Project. Um, and that's also a manual that's available on their, on their website for free. Um, but it's different in that if you're in a peer setting or a festival setting or another setting, um, you know, there may not be somebody who's there who has that expertise and that training and who is, um, you know, sober and dedicated to, uh, assisting you through it. Um, and in, in the research settings, you know, that's really a, a guarantee. It's really a given. Your therapists are there um, specifically to help the person and not only with what they can do, but um, there are, of course, a whole host of other, uh, you know, staff and, and um, support that, that could be accessed if needed. This is just you. This is just me asking you to speculate, and I don't know how comfortable you are with that. But because uh, I would imagine some researchers would be like, "Well, okay, maybe I sometimes allow myself to speculate, but I certainly I'm not going to go on public record because that would make me uh, people would be suspicious of me, you know, routing the data in my speculative direction." Um, but if you're comfortable, uh, why do you think this works? Ah, well, that is a great question. I can cite a couple of potential routes. And again, I can say, you know, it could be any or all or some combination of these things. But these are some of the things that are um, already talked about in the literature. So, uh, and there, there is, you know, there, there is uh, quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of writing about about this. Some of it comes out of that early research stage and, and um, some of it coming in later. But um, for addiction specifically, um, when we're talking about classic psychedelics or serotonergic psychedelics such as LSD and psilocybin, um, there are um, there is the potential that pharmacologically um, those psychedelics can actually help correct or repair some of the um, neurobiological changes that occur with long-term compulsive use of alcohol and other drugs um, and or be uh, somewhat of a protective factor pharmacologically. Um, now the, the, the neurobiological end of this is not my, uh, my main expertise, um, but population studies and studies of groups such as uh, syncretic churches where um, a, a, a brew, which is a sacrament, which contains a naturally occurring compound, which is also in the same pharmacological class, uh, is consumed on a weekly or biweekly basis by a large population, such as the entire you know, congregation of the church. Um, people have actually studied the health outcomes for those groups and demonstrated lower than would be expected uh, rates of 
alcohol abuse, um, and other types of problems. So we know that there may be some relationship there just in terms of drugs in that class having a, a protective factor or a um, some sort of factor that reduces the tendency towards um, addictive problems. Couldn't that also just be experiential? I mean, if they're having a a group trip into the universe, the the euphoria that one experiences can maybe hold them through the difficulties of life where they don't have to turn to substances to cope. Uh, do you know what I mean? Potentially, but from the pharmacological level, I think that there is actually reason to believe that those um, uh, compounds in that class are um, protective of um, developing or, uh, you know, uh, help, help with healing from uh, the damage done by compulsive alcohol use. Um, and and does rate, that have to do with serotonin? I mean, that might be a simple question, but. Yeah, yeah. It has, it has to do with um, how the serotonin system gets regulated over time with um, compulsive addictive behavior um, and how um, classic psychedelics can help uh, in a corrective way for that system. Okay. Um, there's uh, some research on this was conducted by Dr. Charlie Grobe, who is at UCLA. Um, and if you look up something called the Hoska Project, um, you'll find some, some papers on that. Um, they actually went to visit um, groups that were using these medicines in a traditional context and did, um, did uh, not only interviews, but actual um, biomarker measures um, to, to determine this, uh, this trend and this pattern. So that's been, um, that's been fairly, fairly well established. Now, the other, uh, component of it is if you look at things like, um, you know, the, uh, the traditional approach to healing from addiction and, um, the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous specifically, they talk about having a spiritual experience as, a key factor in healing from addiction, healing from alcoholism, right? And um, some of the earliest research and some of the most well-established research, especially with psilocybin, demonstrates that um, it can occasion a mystical or uh, mysticomimetic is a word sometimes people use, uh, experience in a laboratory setting when given in the presence of supportive uh, supportive psychotherapists or supportive guides um, that is profound and lasting and on par with mystical experiences that are, have been had um, in other contexts or for other, you know, engendered in other ways, such as through prayer or um, through uh, meditative experiences and things like that. Um, so it's possible that that subjective experience actually does uh, contribute to putting people on the path towards healing from, uh, from addiction. Yeah. Okay. So those are the two main speculations or hypotheses. Those are, or yeah. Those are kind of two starter speculations. <laughs> there, yeah. there are definitely, uh, there are definitely a lot more. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think, I think in the end, what we're going to be seeing is a, a variety, like a, a mix of different mechanisms of action and that, um, 
which mechanisms are specifically the ones responsible for change in each individual person will be somewhat of an individual profile for each person. Right. Yeah. I think that's the key is that similar to other psychotropics that it, um, there's a set of possibilities that might contribute to symptom change in an individual and it's unknown what set mm-hmm. that individual is going to, you know, benefit from. Uh, and, based on previous research, you know, pretty solid or consensus understandings of serotonin. And it stands to read. That's why I, you know, when people were kind of surprised that psychedelics were helping, I was like, well, from my memory and from, you know, biology classes and psychotropic classes, uh, I remember, you know, these psychedelics having something to do with serotonin and other kinds of processes that were similar to other uh, over the or, you know, prescribed medications that are uh, affecting the brain in a, a, you know, at least a related way. And so Mm -hmm. it makes sense that psychedelics uh, could either benefit in a, in a similar way or in a, you know, related way. Uh, It's well known that SSRIs can help with addiction, for example, and and that involves serotonin uh, system in the brain. And so Mm -hmm. uh, a, a sort of, um, you know, uh, controlled, uh, you know, dose, if you will, of, of serotonin action in the brain, um, might have a similar, uh, effect for people, but it also stands to reason, you know, the second speculation of, uh, you know, being connected to the universe is a profound experience and hard to quantify, of course, but people will say, as I was saying earlier, I tripped 10 years ago at Burning Man and every, you know, few days uh, I remember what happened that during the, you know, that moment for me. And it, it puts, puts things in perspective and really helps me. I'm, you know, I'm really glad that I went through that. Um, uh, I don't want to do it all the time, but, and, uh, you know, maybe never again, but um, you know, that, that time, you know, really uh, helps me similar to, um, I, you know, meditated for a week in India and I carry that with me or I climbed Mount McKinley and was looking out over, you know, the state and the, you know, all the earth I could see before me or uh, I, the birth of my child uh, mm-hmm. or the, um, I don't know, just various different experiences that are uh, re- well reported uh, all the poets and all the songwriters, or I fell in love and that redirected my, my life. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, the profundity of that experience um, really does, we know from both the, both uh, research trials as well as, um, you know, uh, survey data and uh, follow up with people who've had experiences in other settings that it, it really does stay with people and it really can be um, a a moment of pivotal change. Do the news headlines bother you? No, (laughs) but I think sometimes as you alluded to before, they can be, um, they can be overgeneralizations and uh, they can be a little bit misleading. Yeah. I'll often see uh, people in um, private practice who are are coming in and, um, uh, you know, seeking perhaps some uh, some guidance around a decision to um, try a psychedelic in, in a specific setting or 
maybe in a retreat setting or um, in a peer setting. And um, a lot of uh, the conversation can be around kind of mitigating the uh, the expectations that are set up by press that is, um, you know, glowingly positive, um, but may not really capture the full picture uh, of what to expect or what's really going on or um, what the risks may be. The other symptom or condition that I see in the research literature is around end of life Mm -hmm. and how psychedelics are used to help people with their well-being as they uh, prepare for death themselves. Mm -hmm. And they find for some people, they will, uh, after having one of these psychedelic treatment sessions, will be more at ease with the process of dying. Uh, do you have any familiarity with that research? Yes. And um, again, that was research that initiated in uh, as a potential um, indication uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and there were some, you know, there was some experimentation with uh, classic psychedelics, mostly LSD for that particular um, use. The research that was conducted more recently, um, there was a study that was conducted uh, at two sites at uh, Johns Hopkins and at NYU. It was published in 2016. Um, and that research, it was actually a, a psychotherapy study where they gave people um, psilocybin in the context of psychotherapy that was designed to um, help address, elicit and address and discuss uh, and integrate um, insights around end-of-life issues or um, anxiety related to a cancer diagnosis was actually the uh, indication in that in that particular study. Um, and again, you know, it was, a again, a small pilot study, um, but the results were, uh, the results were positive. I mean, people saw uh, some really profound positive changes. Um, it's, it's something to be cautious about because it's not really enough uh, or, you know, results of a long enough duration to, um, you know, to, to have a, an indication and an approval for that use. Um, but it certainly contributes to the pool of knowledge that we have about this medicine and how it might be used um, in order to help people that are, that are suffering in that way. Um, and my, my sincere hope is that uh, the rest of the research that would be needed to demonstrate that it could be used safely and reliably um, for that particular, uh, in that particular way um, can be conducted um, such that it will become available because certainly um, adding stress and anxiety to an end of life care situation um, when someone is really struggling to cope with that um, with that diagnosis and that knowledge, um, it really, really affects not just that person's experience of, of their own death, but um, the experience, I think, of everyone around them, all of their family and caregivers. Um, and I think there's a great potential for um, improving uh, offerings for people in that situation. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I really hope that um, I mean, one of the barriers is societal and governmental and political, cultural resistance to this. 
and uh, it's ridiculous. Um, and it, it, that has to stop. Uh, I suspect it will. Trends are heading in that direction. Legalization of marijuana uh, seems to be the, you know, at the sort of four or at the, the chevron of, of movement uh, or, or more a grown up understanding of these substances. Um, you know, we don't have to have a Nixonian idea of, of these substances. And, um, and it totally stands to reason, uh, especially as uh, more people become atheistic, more people become uh, atheists and don't believe in an afterlife or don't believe in a, a God, uh, you know, where religion may have provided those experiences for people in the past. Uh, it's harder to have that experience uh, maybe for some people. And so um, having um, this a tool to connect people with the universe uh, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase uh, mm-hmm. you know my it totally stands to reason you know um, you'll hear people at whether end of life or not uh, with a having it like I said climbing Mount McKinley or um, you know their child being born um, these are profound experiences that psychology often doesn't really focus on you know as a thing to uh, try to harness for the betterment of human beings. And, uh, and I think that psychedelics might be, uh, you know, involving that for, for, for a lot of people. Um, so what about when people are talking about microdosing? What, what's that all about? Mm. So microdosing is another uh, area where I think the, perhaps the perception of what research exists or uh, the safety of, uh, of that practice has been um, uh, mis- misestimated. <laughs> so I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, microdosing in psychedelics refers to the practice of taking a small dose of a psychedelic, usually about a tenth of an active uh, or full dose. Um, and doing so on a either a daily or every few days um, basis. Um, you'll hear people say that microdosing is taking a sub-perceptual dose. Um, I think a better word would be a sub-psychedelic dose um, or a, uh, a, a dose that has some perceptible effect as far as change in mood or change in um, just body feeling or sensation, things like that, uh, maybe an energy level or creativity, um, but it, that is not uh, intoxicating or um, uh, moving someone into a space where they're uh, sort of disconnected from um, their normal, being able to conduct their normal routine. Um, and that dose is going to be, you know, mean different things for, for different people. Um, the practice of microdosing really came to light and was uh, initially, I think, documented and um, researched by a psychologist by the name of Jim Fadman, who, who is based in California. Um, and he has recently, well, recently, meaning the last in this, in this uh, recent uh, resurgence of, um, of psychedelic research, um, he's designed a way to study microdosing by essentially uh, coming up with a protocol uh, for how often and 
um, what kinds of things people might record about their microdosing experience and allowing people to you know, self-select and submit their own data about their own experiences. And he's collected quite a large body of, uh, of literature and uh, of, sorry, of experiences um, and has uh, compiled and written and published and spoken about this. Um, and it, it makes, you know, quite a compelling case for the fact that this is something that's happening. Uh, it's being documented um, and people are, the people that are documenting it and, and sending in these reports are uh, really reporting some some positive uh, some positive changes. Um, but what's really important to remember about that is that it's self-selecting, uh, not blinded, or so no placebo-controlled uh, studies. So it's all self-report uh, data from people that are, you know choosing to do this on their own and know that they're doing it um, and doing it with the expectation of a positive result, right? Right. Um, but it is very interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating and it's wonderful and a, a, a really a testament to his dedication to the field, uh, that he has been able to gather so much documentation about, uh, about this practice. Um, there, ha- because of the fact that psychedelics are so closely regulated and controlled and, Right now, the way things are for research study, the therapists need to stay with people who take psychedelics in the research setting for the duration of eight hours after they take the psychedelic. Um, there were there aren't really uh, studies where people are being given microdoses, uh, you know, in a research setting and allowed to kind of go out and go about their day, and then um, you know, it's documented whether or not it's a placebo or a microdose. That's that's not something that's that's happening. I know that some people are trying to get something like that off the ground, but because of the regulatory situation, uh, it's quite challenging. Um, there is another study um, that's very interesting design that um, is going on in Europe where people are asked to basically self-blind their own microdoses. Um, so if they're going to be microdosing, they're given a, a formula like a... Um, a printable document where they can label their doses and they create their own placebo doses and their own microdoses and then they mix them all up and there's a, a coded way that they're able to um, take a random selection of those doses and this and report back to the study which coded envelope they took um, so that the study knows which dose they took on which day but the participant doesn't actually um, but again limited as in people are supplying their own uh, their own actual psychedelics to participate in the study, um, and so also you know self selecting as far as uh, who's who's going to be doing that. Um, so those are some of the attempts to study this, but we don't really know again um, what the long term effects are, what the health effects are, or how this would compare to, um, for instance, uh, other interventions or uh, traditional. Um, you know, the use of traditional psychotropic meds. Yeah. Like I said, it stands to reason that this would have some effect, uh, however limited and some benefit for some people, how, however limited, and, and maybe, you know, a moderate amount of people could benefit moderately, uh, given that it involves brain chemistry and, mm-hmm. uh, that is at least akin to other demonstrated, well-researched 
psychotropics. Um, it stands to reason that there would be a signal there in, in the data. Um, having said that, I'm old enough to remember various different hype around other uh, you know, magic pills. Uh, for example, Prozac I mentioned earlier. I'm old enough to remember when that was considered to be a miracle drug for all sorts of things. And uh, the headlines would state that people um, uh, were, you know, even prescribers and scientists saw it that way. Uh, as we've gathered more data over the past you know, 30 years, the, this, this effect size is getting smaller and smaller uh, compared to placebo. And uh, although there's, there's an effect size, there's a, there's an effect for some people. It, it certainly isn't the miracle drug that it was seen as um, when it first hit the scene. And I don't know if that's what psychedelics will experience in terms of the data over the next 30, 40 years, but it certainly seems possible. And uh, obviously I have no idea, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, I'm just, uh, when I start hearing these headlines and I start hearing anecdotes, because I remember people anecdotally talking about and I don't doubt their experience, um, and I don't. I'm not necessarily uh, accusing them of being subjected to a placebo effect, but um, it just seemed like the the rhetoric and among clinicians and among scientists and among the media around Prozac had a had a very similar beginning to the way psychedelics has, and and it also just seems like there's a certain amount of people out there who just like the idea of psychedelics as a a regular part of their life or as a, as a nice thing, you know, for society or something. And I, I just feel like there's, and, and you're, you know, very responsible in, in your language and, and your practice. And so I, uh, I, I just, um, I guess I just wanted to say that. <laughs> uh, do you have any feelings about that uh, rant? I just want to. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great rant. Um, can Fantastic. Well, well done, Rant. Um, I mean, I, I I get that. I mean, I'm I am cautious, and I'm certainly um, I have my cautious hat on today because um, the last thing that I want is for uh, anyone, your listeners included, uh, in that category to uh, to to experience harm because of this. And I think that there uh, there is certainly the potential for that. Um, you know, the, the harms of psychedelics are not the same kinds of harms that we see in relation to, you know, alcohol use and uh, opiates and, um, you know, maybe other, uh, maybe even other psychotropic drugs that could have um, some really profound neurological problems and things like that associated. But there really is a potential for harm, especially with um, use in uncontrolled settings or, uh, around people who may be unsafe uh, and inexperienced, um, or for people who have some real, um, you know, psychological struggles and difficulties, uh, for whom psychedelics can be a profoundly um, uh, just disorienting or uh, dysregulating experience. So, um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm also very optimistic about the research. I mean, I, I you know, witnessing uh, firsthand some of the really profound change that is possible. Um, but there's a lot that we don't know about how to work with this and how to really provide it to people in a way that's going to be um, a consistently safe and therapeutic experience. And what we're doing in the trials really, it, it doesn't translate to, to other 
settings. You can't count on getting those same kind of results um, in another setting. You know, it doesn't mean that people don't have also um, some positive experiences and some truly healing experiences in other settings. Um, but they're not, uh, there's, they're, they're not a guarantee, you know, they're, um, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely a risk and, and potential for harm there. Yeah. The interesting part of your dis- describing the protocol is that the headlines will say psychedelics cure PT- PTSD, but the headlines should say psychedelics plus a very specific psychotherapy protocol helped <laughs> to reduce yeah. PTSD symptoms. It, Cause it's right. not just like they just throw psychedelics at these people and they walk <laughs> away and come back. It's a, a very specific human interaction with a expert clinician therapist mm-hmm. who is there and also thereafter uh, to actually integrate this stuff. And of course that's what they found with uh, you know, SSRIs was that when you combined SSRIs with psychotherapy, then that seemed to be the, the magic uh, sort of combination. And mm-hmm. from my biology classes, I remember the professor talking about how um, it, it, they originally thought, okay, SSRIs are actually helping with the brain chemistry, but his, uh, and maybe, you know, other experts, their hypothesis was the, pro, you know, Prozac and other serotonin acting um, uh, substances. Uh, one hypothesis is that it opens the mind up to uh, be changed, but you have to actually actively try to change it th- through either self-reflection or uh, s- through psychotherapy. And mm-hmm. by just taking the medication, it just sort of, it, you know, makes your brain flexible to a new state and you have to capitalize on that flexibility in a way that's very specific. And you can't rely on people to just come up with that, uh, you know, new homeostasis naturally there has to be some kind of engineering to get it there and so uh so that's one thing and yeah i mean getting to the harm i I know anecdotally that for people who recreationally will take psychedelics will experience trauma because of the the bad trips or um you know some other kind of effect that was not pleasant for them um, you know, it's not guaranteed that you're going to have a great time. And and the trip, if, uh, you know, taken normally, can last for hours and hours. So if you get into a bad spot, like you could be in that bad spot for a long time. Now, of course, there are ways to help people that a lot of people don't turn to when they could or it's not offered to them. Uh, that could definitely help. But, but you know, there is that risk. Um, even under a controlled environment, it's much lower risk according to the data, right? But the other is that, you know, I, from my understanding of the research, and it's hard to know exactly, but it can trigger in, in a very rare case, psych, psychosis for, for some people, um, which can last well beyond the, the you know, the, the use. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is something to uh, to consider before going into this that, um, what you're talking about is a very controlled scenario that is meant to reduce those risks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think just speaking in, you know, to the general uh, population of people who are either, you know, accessing a psychotherapist or who are a psychotherapist. Um, one of the things that I'm doing in my 
private, you know, I call my private practice work, but my work outside of the research settings is to um, help build programs for therapists to become more educated about uh, even just some of the simple um, harm reduction preparation and integration concepts that they can use in uh, in a very basic introductory conversation with someone um, because we really feel that a lot of those harms can be uh, mitigated by sort of thinking some things through both ahead of time and, and afterward. And you mentioned, you know, people having um, bad experiences or difficult experiences that can kind of extend uh, for some period of time after the acute psychedelic effects um, should have worn off. And one of the things that we do in our trainings is start to educate clinicians about what to look for, what to assess for, how to provide um, verbal reassurance, how to reduce harm, uh, should they see something like that, um, as well as what else can be, you know, might they try to do for somebody who's in such a situation, um, both from a perspective of keeping them safe, but also from a perspective of reducing a long-term, uh, any long-term potential for long-term negative consequences, right? Yeah. How do you, uh, both in your, what you're calling your private practice and the research, get around the legal risks and the lawsuit risks? Well, in research, you know, everything that we're doing is completely legal and um, we're, you know, we have all the relevant uh, approvals from the FDA and the DEA and um, it's not illegal to do, to do this research given that you have the correct, um, the correct approvals and you're following the law and there, there, the law does allow for this research to be done and it always has. Um, it just took a really long time from the time that those laws were put into place, the, the more restrictive laws that we have now, which really went into place in the 19, early 1960s um, in order to protect the public from, um, from you know, unscrupulous use of drugs without proper, uh, proper research data, um, to researchers with psychedelics being able to meet those standards and, uh, and conduct approved research studies. So all of that is being followed and the research work is completely um, above, above board. Um, in terms of other work, you know, in private practice with people, I work from a harm reduction perspective. Um, I don't refer anyone for psychedelic therapy underground. I don't refer people to uh, retreat centers that are offering psychedelics or um, in any way, uh, you know, uh, offer or indicate or recommend or suggest or anything um, like that, because my position is that, you know, if this is a decision that someone wants to make, that um, that's, it's, it's their decision, but I can't, it's not something that I can recommend as their healthcare provider. Um, a couple things I can do are refer people to clinical trials um, and, you know, tell them, educate them about what trials are available in their area um, and what it might mean to uh, be able to participate in one. Um, I also can, can recommend and work with people to have ketamine experiences, um, which are available legally through, um, uh, through uh, MD providers that provide ketamine infusions. Um, and a lot of the same principles um, of psychedelic assisted therapy can be used around uh, before and after ketamine experience. Um, and if people, you know, have gone, uh, taken, gone to take or are going to take a psychedelic 
uh, of their own accord in another setting, um, I can work with them to uh, reduce the potential for harm surrounding that experience um, or to integrate the insights that they have from that experience. Um, and that's really where, uh, where the private practice work is at and um, what we are teaching therapists to be able to begin to do in, in their own work. So by harm reduction, I'm guessing what you are referring to is someone knows that you are open to discussing the use of psychedelics uh, recreationally, not prescribed by you at all and not recommended by you, but mm -hmm. they, they know that you're, uh, you know, that's your focus and they say, okay, you know, this therapist is open to this and, and um, I, I want to explore this. She knows the research and they, uh, you know, I guess, technically speaking, recreationally, but they're trying to do something with it. They're trying to reduce their depression. They're trying to address their addiction. They're um, trying to help with some trauma or something or some other issue. And they will take the psychedelic on their own. Um, and then in the sessions with you, uh, you will help them to reduce harm by uh, maybe s helping them set up these environments at home so that they aren't um, at risk of having bad trips and this kind of thing mm -hmm. and, and or uh, integrating the experience afterwards for the benefit of whatever goal they're trying to work on. Do I have this right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a fairly good uh, description of it. I mean, what's one of the things that's always important to uh, convey to people is that there is no, uh, that w there's no way that we can or would be uh, reproducing what happens in uh, the research um, because what we're doing is, um, you know, harm reduction around them having, you know, making their decision to have their own experience as opposed to um, engaging them in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, but I think that there's, uh, there's a lot that can be done as far as helping people to, you know, uh, make balanced decisions, um, consider the risks and benefits of deciding either way about something, maybe considering alternatives, um, maybe getting educated about um, ways to keep themselves safe or about... Um, you know, potential uh, backup plans, safety plans, and things like that. So uh, there is actually quite a lot that quite a lot that can be done there. And um, you know, I think that uh, for people who um, for people who understand um, and want to sort of make their own autonomous decision, um, that a harm reduction uh, therapy approach is extremely helpful. Um, our harm reduction background comes really through Dr. Andrew Tatarski and the Center for Optimal Living um, in New York, um, a place that my business partner and I worked for several years and received some training and supervision. And his model is called Integrative Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. And it really integrates psychodynamic therapy principles um, with harm reduction and mindfulness and other, um, other ways of supporting people in um, examining their relationship to uh, a substance or drug that they might use or consider using, um, as well as bringing the relationship with the therapist into the picture um, for support and guidance um, and building the client's autonomy around their own decisions. And for those who don't know what harm reduction is in general, uh, if I might 
quickly summarize it from my understanding is that for a long time in the chemical dependency world, abstinence was the recommendation and for many people, the only answer to having a life that uh, wasn't without troubles. And then harm reduction came along and said, okay, yeah, abstinence can be very helpful to a lot of people. But for some people, this other model of uh, not necessarily uh, accepting that, that abstinence is the only answer that may be talking openly about the substance use and its effects and reducing harm. Uh, maybe it's through moderation. Maybe it's through the circumstances under which you use or even the specific substances you use. Right. Uh, and there's tr- there has been traditionally tremendous controversy in the chemical dependency world between these two camps because for the abstinence-only camp, uh, this is perceived by some to be just an excuse for addicts to continue to use and to uh, play around with uh, their uh, lives in some ways. Um, Whereas harm reduction people are just trying to look at, you know, when they look at the data and they're just trying to be more um, realistic about uh, for, for some people, not only because for some people it's really hard for them to quit, but for some people it's, it's actually not a problem for them to, you know, overall to use occasionally. Um, it's, you know, obviously individual basis, but, um, but that's what harm reduction, the field, you know, in general is. Um, how, how do you uh, think about malpractice, you know, as a fellow uh, practicing clinician I, um, and as someone who supervises a lot of paranoid uh, supervisees and trains a lot of paranoid <laughs> trainees, I imagine uh, a lot of listeners are like, wait a second, like, how do you, I mean, I, I'm worried about losing my license if I, if I accept a gift from a client for crying out loud, like <laughs> this, this woman's like supervising these people using drugs, you know, like LSD, like, holy crap, what do you do? Um, well, well, first of all, one thing I make clear to all of my, uh, my patients in uh, private practice, and I'll, I'll just iterate right now that my private practice is actually tiny, tiny, tiny at this point, um, just because of so much teaching and training and research responsibilities. But um, I, you know, I initially learned and trained in a harm reduction uh, model. Uh, This is going back, I don't even want to say an embarrassing number of years a while ago. (laughs) Um, But uh, I, you know, right since the beginning of even my, um, you know, uh, master's level clinical hours and, um, you know, beginning going into my, before I was even going into my PhD program, um, was, you know, was, I was thinking about ways and, um, practicing training in environments where, um, harm reduction was supported and welcomed and used. And, uh, so right off the bat, um, was, working with and comfortable working with people who were not necessarily abstinent from all drugs and alcohol as a prerequisite requirement to be in therapy. Um, and, you know, so in a way this is, it's not a departure from that the same way that I wouldn't, uh, necessarily kick a patient out of my, um, psychotherapy practice because they went out on a Friday night and used some cocaine, um, nor would I kick someone out of my psychotherapy practice if they came back from a, an ayahuasca retreat, right? 
um, there's a there's a parallel there, and it can be helpful to think of it that way because we tend to you know maybe put psychedelics in a different category from all other substances. Um, but sometimes it's helpful to revert to like what would it, what happens if we just you know switch the name out and think of it as any other um, any other substance. And from a legal standpoint, I mean, I think that's probably how it's mostly. Uh, would be considered. Now, the decision-making is a little bit different around it, um, but, uh, you know, that is that is one way to, uh, to kind of conceptualize it. Um, I think, uh, you know, the idea that uh, people, uh, you know, any drug use and all drug uses of any kind, psychedelic or otherwise, is, uh, is bad and people shouldn't be, uh, you know, we should just sort of come at it with a pre- uh, a pre-formulated idea that it, it shouldn't be there and it should be reduced or it should be gone in order for people to be in psychotherapy um, is actually pretty damaging and um, excludes a lot of people and a lot of people's actual experience um, from uh, from what they're able and willing to talk, talk about in psychotherapy. So uh, I see it as my responsibility to welcome uh, people's experiences into my uh, into my psychotherapy sessions and, and be open to what they're experiencing. And if my patients are telling me, I think this is going to be helpful for me and I want to talk about it, then that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. I find that dogma is still around frustratingly that if a client is actively using substances, uh, but only in a specific class, right? If they, they have a couple glasses of wine on Friday night, we don't exclude people, but if some, you know, and more, this is more in the past, but I think still around if they're smoking pot uh, every other day or using psychedelics every other day, somehow this, there's this dogma in our field that it's just like, well, you can't treat that person. They got to work on their addiction. They got to become abstinent before you can work with them in psychotherapy because therapy is like useless in that situation. And I'm just like, okay, sh- show me the research on that one because that is not supported by the science. Plus it's like, completely just uh, on its face ridiculous when you understand humans and you understand substances and uh, and you take into consideration uh, the commercial with Ben Affleck flipping out on the ground having used um, marijuana if, if you remember that commercial um, back in the 90s uh, mm-hmm. this this notion of you know substances just completely change you into this like you know uh, substance zombie or something that can't be you're just like a completely different state of of animal uh, mm-hmm. is is just silly and somehow caffeine is off the hook Al- like I said occasional alcohol use is off the hook um, right right and- I mean that kind of it's a it's a sort of a pervasive idea and culture and it's one thing that it's resulted in is not very good education about um, varieties of experiences with substance use. Um, and about uh, psychedelics as potential, potential having potential healing properties in uh, graduate education. Um, right. So I think it's just it's something it's like a big missing piece of a lot of therapists' education. Um, I run into a lot of therapists who feel you know oh I, I can't work with addictions I don't have that particular special experience or training I'm not in that club. Um, and I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, I, I think these are sort of varieties of human suffering, and uh, there's a lot more about about all of this that's universal um, as opposed to qualitatively different. Um, and when I train therapists to do harm reduction integration work with uh, psychedelics, one of the main principles is really that um, 
I think, you know, good therapists have a lot already on board to contribute. It's not a whole different, uh, it's not a whole different set of skills one would need to learn, but, um, good therapeutic technique, good rapport, um, good care and concern about your, about your clients and openness and willing to listen to their experience. And those are the basic building blocks of it. Has there been any test cases in Department of Health or in civil suits that involve a patient who is in something similar or even your form of approach who, say, uh, attempts suicide or complete suicide or drives while intoxicated, gets an accident, the patient or the family uh, looks into it, sues the practitioner, the clinician, uh, accusing them of approving of the substance use or encouraging it or um, not taking a harder stance against the substance use for the duty to protect uh, standard. Has there been any case around that? Because I could see something like that. I could see a family or an individual uh, making that claim. What I can say is that, you know, I'm not familiar with all of the case law around all of um, what has transpired with all the harm reduction cases and people in harm reduction therapy. Um, you know, certainly it does happen when, um, when in the unfortunate case, when someone who's in therapy or in treatment um, uh, completes suicide or has some other um, really adverse outcome that um, there can be lawsuits. It does happen. Um, but harm reduction psychotherapy in general and as uh, an approach to working with addictive behaviors is certainly well established um, and certainly stands its ground as a recognized and valued and widely practiced approach. Right. Thus the standard of care defense stands, but, yes. but it is, but it is different uh, f- at least from my understanding of what you're talking about, you know, someone comes in and says, uh, and I get the, um, I don't know, the, the protective factor of saying, look, we're working within the harm reduction model, which I, I think is, is valid. But philosophically, it feels different to me enough, at least to provide the potential for, uh, you know, a hostile lawyers, so to speak, to, uh, to find that crack in that uh, when, when someone comes in and they're like, look, I've been struggling with alcohol use on and off in my life and I've tried AA, I've tried abstinence. It doesn't really work. Um, I want to, I want to try a new approach. And you say, Oh, well, there's just harm reduction. Okay. So you have these conversations with them about like, how can you, uh, you know, use a little bit, but not so much that you're causing tremendous harm in your life. And maybe there's some side effects like, uh, you're a little tired the next day or um, you can't do work while you have a few glasses of wine uh, two times a week or something. So that, you know, there's, it's not without its um, negative consequences, but you get the benefit of the fact that you're not white knuckling it. You're not, um, you know, shaming yourself for quote unquote relapsing. And, you know, there's all these kinds of ways. So, you know, it's a kind of a very simplistic harm reduction example, but uh, what you're talking about is different. You're talking about, okay, uh, you're using, uh, you know, psychedelics. Obviously, uh, I'm not going to uh, dictate your life. And, um, you know, what what kind of approach do you want to have? And the person's like, well, I want to occasionally use, and I, I want to talk about it with you as a way of 
um, integrating those experiences uh, as to, to better my life in, in one way or another. And so you're, in a sense, it's at least perceived by the client that this psychedelic usage outside of therapy is, in essence, an adjunct to therapy. Uh, so to me, it is philosophically different. Um, I do respect and would defend the, uh, you know, the usage of the harm reduction umbrella standard because mm-hmm. I do think it does apply in essence, but it is kind of different, don't you think? It's, I, I see it as an extension of um, the underlying harm reduction principles and maybe actually a, um, a selection of them. But one thing that might also be helpful to consider is what would, what would be the opposite, right? So the opposite might be, um, you know, not providing any uh, psychoeducation, uh, you know, um, you know, telling the person this is not something you should do. Uh, really, like making a very clear, uh, you know, taking a very clear prohibitive stance about it. Um, and from our perspective, that has the potential to actually do harm, right? Because. Right then they're less likely to learn ways to protect themselves. They're less likely to uh, engage in a really thoughtful uh, consideration of it um, or engage in some really balanced decision-making. And um, that has the potential to actually sort of increase the harms of not just stigma and isolation, but lack of information that can, uh, can, that can enhance the risks. Um, so, I, I mean, I feel much uh, better that I'm able to provide people with um, some uh, some education and some ways of making a making a more suitable decision, as opposed to just coming out as a, from a prohibitive stance, um, which is probably going to uh, put them in a place where they're less likely to be able to take care of themselves. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to hammer on this too much, but I just find that. Uh, for me, since I don't do this work, um, I uh, and I tend to rail against society in these ways. You know, if, if someone said, "I'm I want to talk about going hiking once a week and how those experiences are helping me with my goals in therapy," and so therapist, can you? And you're a you're a hike. Uh, focused therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, every session I'm going to talk about my hike that I went on on Sunday and I'm going to talk about how, um, you know, I thought about this and I ran into these people and I, I saw a elk and it just helped me in this way. And I, I meditated on the death of my parents and, and, you know, I want to talk about that. Um, you know, we don't have to frame that in a harm reduction uh, model, right? We're just like, great, you know, your life is your life. Are there risks to hiking? Yeah, but um, I don't ha- I'm not in the business of telling people what to do or telling people how to live their lives. So, you know, do you know the risks, fella? Yeah, I know that. Okay, fine. You know, let's talk about it. Uh, somehow when it comes to psychedelic exploration for people, we have to frame it in this um this way in which it um at least gives the impression or you know the very you know real uh action of us you know cautioning people against the ill effects of the substance even though it's an adult doing something you know what i mean 
I mean, absolutely. And that's something that is very well, I think, very thoroughly discussed and very openly discussed in the harm reduction psychotherapy setting and um, certainly documented that it's discussed. Um, But, you know, one thing that might help to mention is that um, oftentimes what people come to us with questions about doing is not actually illegal. Um, People are coming to us with questions about, you know, for instance, taking a psychedelic that is uh, would mean going abroad to take it uh, in a you know in a retreat setting where it's simply unregulated or it's uh, legal but not actually a medical use situation. So there's a lot of sort of gray areas around that that um, we can help people to understand what that what that means. Um, you know what does it mean to go somewhere where this particular compound is not regulated and what might they expect. Um, also to help evaluate, you know, the other people that might be providing it to them and might be there with them during the, uh, during said experience. Um, we do a lot of educating about alternatives, um, especially because of the media, like you mentioned before, people will sometimes come in really with the idea that this is the only thing that would help them. Um, and, you know, I consider it a a successful, uh, discussion when someone leaves with, um, you know, an idea about some of the other options and alternatives that might be out there for them. Um, One of the things that I'm really invested in studying and uh, I'm practicing myself certainly is um, work with other methods for accessing um, alternative states of consciousness. So non-drug methods such as meditation, yoga, breath work, um, you know, uh, sensory deprivation, all kinds of other things that can really uh, give people a lot of what they are seeking uh, without the actual uh, psychedelic compound. So uh, there's just a lot of variety that can go into that conversation. It can, it can really open up the possibilities for people. So my last question for you, Elizabeth, is why did you choose this as a focus in your career? I mean, it, it's certainly uh, a, an interesting area to, to look into and you seem passionate about it. Why did you choose this? Absolutely. I come from a community where um, knowledge about the psychedelic history was fairly well, uh, well distributed. It was fairly well known. Um, so it wasn't, it, it wasn't a mystery to me. I think a lot of people were uh, unaware of what happened in the 1950s and 60s and the whole uh, you know, surge of LSD research and, and uh, Timothy Leary and prohibition and all of that. But um, I was well aware of that. And when I went to uh, graduate school, I was actually surprised that I heard virtually nothing about it. Um, I knew that, you know, psychedelic research had stopped and psychedelics obviously were not available legally. Um, but it was sort of during this period of uh, not much going on. Um, maybe a few studies had restarted, but they were so small and obscure that uh, I certainly had no way of, of hearing about them um, until I was just a few months away from defending my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation. Um, and I had studied a lot of different approaches to working um, with addictions and harm reduction and mindfulness-based approaches, a lot of things that were in some way related, but I didn't quite have the, the full picture yet. Um, and I received a uh, uh, an email through my state psychological association listserv, which if every, uh, every therapist is not already connected with your state psychological association or, or similar group, this is a real reason to be, um, 
a local uh, institution was looking for someone to join um, a study as a, a therapist. Um, and it was very clearly a psilocybin assisted treatment study. They were looking for a lot of the things uh, that I had on my, you know, checked off on my years of experience. Um, and it, it just seemed like the perfect fit. Um, it was like an immediate click for me. This makes perfect sense. Yes. I was like, where have these people been? <laughs> I'm so glad that this is happening. Um, and I went in, I, I, I called them up and I went over and had an interview. Um, and the team, you know, was, uh, was really happy to work with me. We, we kind of hit it off right away. Um, and from there, it was just a long, slow process of patience and training and returning and returning and, you know, keeping up with all kinds of different requirements and credentials and, uh, you know, institutional trainings and specific research trainings and um, to eventually be able to build, um, this is, you know, six years later, uh, a really full, full-fledged, full-time career in both clinical research, um, private practice, and education. Um, so I know that there are a lot of people out there that are really, really interested in this field. Um, I have to say, if you if you want to go into research, make sure that you actually want to go into research because the world of clinical research has its own whole set of regulations and requirements and things that you need to learn and know about. And they're fascinating if you've got that particular type of nerd hat. But um, if it's something that you're more interested in uh, from a psychotherapist perspective, I think now is the time to start getting some training in psychedelic harm reduction and integration, start having, you know, conversations with people who've used psychedelics in your practice, just so you get a feel for what that's like. Um, and in the next couple of years, there are going to be more and more opportunities um, you know, pending the research moving forward in the direction that we expect, um, there's going to be more and more opportunities for people to get training actually in psychedelic assisted therapy and how to administer and how to uh, really be there with people during that experience. But those training opportunities are not uh, really online yet because um, there's no opportunity to uh, use that, um, that kind of training in private practice quite yet at this time. Well, you must be naturally an out-of-the-box, unafraid thinker and liver because uh, I've, most people having faced with that opportunity would, especially at that stage of one's career where people are at their most paranoid, uh, most people would have turned it down even if they wanted to do it. So, uh, you know, you're a brave, courageous. Oh, no, I was, uh, I was all in. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, but I really have to say, you know, I um, – I, I had the uh, I had the, uh, the background to recognize and know what I was looking at, and I'm very grateful that I did. Um, but I also had some I, I did get some funny looks. I will I will admit that I got some funny looks, and um, you know it's one thing to be able to just um, tell people this is what I'm doing, this is what I believe in, and um, sometimes you just have to do what you believe in. You say you have a background, um, and. The, the thing that popped into my head was this stereotype of like your parents were deadheads or something. I don't know. Like, what do you mean by a background? Uh, my parents were not quite deadheads, but um, my mom was uh, a bit of a hippie. Um, she grew up in New York city and she moved to Woodstock in 1968 
um, which for those unfamiliar is uh, about two hours north of New York City. And it was sort of this hippie uh, cultural center, uh, which gave rise to the famous Woodstock concert of 1969. Um, And I grew up in that community um, long after the, uh, the heyday of the hippie years, um, but I was definitely exposed to a lot of the stories of the people of her generation, um, the artists and the musicians um, that were really prominent at that time. Um, they were all, they were all still around, and they were you know they were my parents' friends. They were like the the moms and dads picking us up after elementary school, um, and they would just tell us stories about this stuff. Uh, it was no secret. It was just you know well that's what our that's what our parents' generation was up to. And we're out here like normal kids, you know, playing soccer and going to theater and getting off to college and trying to figure out uh, what we're doing with our lives. But um, I think that the stories of that generation were definitely sort of baked into my, uh, my community. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, I of course knew about Woodstock, but I, I never knew why they chose Woodstock. I thought it was just a convenient uh, campground or a, you know, festival ground for them to uh, have the festival. I didn't know that it had already become kind of a a New York um, hippie bastion. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was a, um, it was actually always a colony of the arts um, for years, even many years before that, because artists from New York city would come up and um, the art students league had its summer school there. And there were all these like artists cottages where sculptors and painters and musicians would come up and spend the summer in the mountains and, uh, that had been well established for many years, and then in the 1960s, um, the you know so the folk musicians and Bob Dylan and the hippies started showing up, and um, it it was already established as that. And the Woodstock Festival was named for the town because the organizers and most of the many of the musicians had a relationship to that uh, to that town. But the festival was actually held um, in another part of the in another county, you know, like a. a 50 or 60 minute drive away. It was, it was not actually in town. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So any famous names that uh, you can drop here? But, <laughs> you know, you said, you know, the, the musicians uh, were your, you know, the other parents in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you're familiar with, um, for those familiar with Bob Dylan, um, you know, he lived in Woodstock for a very long time. Um, the, the band that was the band that played with him named the band. Um, many of, they lived in Woodstock for quite a long time and, uh, many of them, uh, remained there over the years. Um, we're good friends with my, my mom and her family. Um, and just a lot of, a lot of people from town, a lot of artists and, um, and other, you know, other musicians that, that lived there. Um, certainly the, the town is famous for having, um, uh, you know, extended visits or residences from Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, uh, people that came through the area. Um, but it was pretty well, uh, well frequented. Yeah. I mean, it's just a perfect story. You know, the, the kid from Woodstock becomes a psychologist <laughs> and, <laughs> and does yeah, good by know, the it, community. It wasn't oddly enough. That it wasn't my goal to get involved in psychedelic therapy. <laughs> I didn't even know it would be, uh, an option by the time I got that far, you know, 15 years out, uh, into adulthood. And, you know, it sort of just landed on my, landed in my inbox. Um, but, uh, so it's a bit of a coincidence, but, uh, definitely not a, uh, not a uh, far-fetched thing for me. Yeah. yeah. If, I mean, I think Timothy Leary was at Woodstock, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
or at least his disciples would have been right. And to, to think mm-hmm. that if they only would have known that a local, you know, psychologist uh, person would end up carrying the torch and doing the cause <laughs> and yeah. making it, making it legit. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's yeah. pretty, that's well, pretty interesting. Uh, what a lot of people don't might not know is that Leary was a psychologist. Yeah. And a professor at Stanford. He, was at Harvard. he? he had a fascinating yeah. career, um, fascinating life, really one of my favorite topics in history. Um, it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun to read about, but his mansion uh, in the 1960s, after he left uh, Harvard, uh, his mansion was actually in Millbrook, New York, which is about a uh, 45-minute drive south of Woodstock. So he was in the area, but he wasn't actually living in, in town. Didn't he spend time in prison because of his advocacy in the 60s? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He, was in, he was in prison. He was in jail in California. He escaped, uh, and he was... Um, he escaped from prison? Yeah, he escaped from from prison in California, and then he was recaptured somewhere in Europe. And I apologize, I don't have the story so fresh in my mind, but he was recaptured. Um, Nixon was uh, very determined to uh, bring him back and um, get him back into prison. Um, And he actually served uh, quite a substantial amount of time in solitary confinement. Wow. He was at Harvard for about two years, and... um, while he was there, he specifically, you know, decided to make psilocybin and LSD research his main, the main focus of his interest um, and conduct research with those drugs while he was there. Um, but uh, it was really after he left Harvard that he became sort of this outspoken advocate for uh, widespread LSD use. Um, but uh, he certainly had a he had an extremely interesting life, and I mean, much has been written about it, and I think we're starting to understand things a little bit better in uh, in perspective. But I feel for years he was sort of scapegoated as you know the reason that psychedelics were prohibited. Um, but history actually indicates that um, you know there were there were multiple factors that contributed to that, um, and you know, his sort of outlandish, outspoken uh, nature made him like a sensationalized character um, who it's easy to sort of pinpoint as, oh, you know, it was it was this guy's fault. Um, but he actually contributed quite a lot to the cause for, for LSD and was pretty well respected by a lot of people, still is. Did Was he the one who said, tune in, turn on, drop out? Yep, that was him. Yeah. He also said he also said something to the effect of uh, LSD has the remarkable uh, capacity uh, to cause uh, great uh, great panic in people who've never taken it. Interesting. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, it's been fascinating. Uh, we branched off into a lot of areas that I didn't expect to, um, and you certainly seem like a very responsible science communicator, which I appreciate greatly. Uh, and it's an exciting field. Where can people find you, uh, not only as a therapist, a clinician, but also as a trainer and as a maybe an advisor for people wanting to get into the research? How can they find you? The best way to find me is through my website, which is the name of my training and education program is Fluence. And the website is Fluence8, that's the digit 8.com. So F L U E N C E 8.com. 
Um, and on that website, you'll find a lot of information about different training programs. There is a form to contact us as well as uh, an email, uh, an info email, um, and a phone number. And all of that contact stuff works. Um, it links directly to either to me or to my business partner, who is uh, Dr. Ingmar Gorman, another psychologist in New York, who's also in the research world. Um, and we look forward to hearing from anybody who's interested. Um, it's just us right now working on this project. So um, you'll, uh, if you reach out, you'll hear back from one of us and uh, we'll try to get you connected to uh, whatever it is that might help meet your needs. What's Fluence referring to? Fluence is, so it's the name of our training and education project. Um, it's the root of words like confluence and uh, influence. And um, it can mean something like either a magical or mystical power um, or has something to do with the, uh, the, the, um, the measure of intensity of an electrical current or um, the uh, density of particles in an electrical current. Um, so it has some meanings both in science and, um, and can refer to a mystical power. Um, and it's also the word that we chose just to be our name. Oh, cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Elizabeth Nielsen. Um, I encourage people to reach out to Elizabeth Nielsen. If you have more specific questions, uh, she is offering quite a service to you in that way. Um, it, I know a lot of you have very specific questions and want to know more. And so, um, it's great that Elizabeth is offering herself up. Um, at least to redirect you to the right answers. And, and that's Thanks fantastic. So yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And um, hope your listeners have enjoyed this and will, um, you know, continue their own trajectory of learning about this topic um, with the resources that are out there. There's just so much to learn. It's really fascinating. All right. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. <laughs>